Hello and welcome to 97.9 Unity Radio Moneyline. With me, as always, the coach, Frankie C. And we have a very special guest, the real coach, Randy Edsel. Randy Edsel of the University of Connecticut and Maryland. Coach, thanks for joining us. Oh, my pleasure, Steve. Glad to be with you. I know that you scoured the earth for the best possible interviewers around, and you came across my name. So you are very lucky to have me. I just wanted you to know that. <laughs> oh, I, I know that. I mean, shoot, there's, there's, there's only one, a Steve Cully, and, <laughs> and uh, I always loved being around you when I, when I coached you. And uh, now, uh, now that uh, you're, you're getting to that uh, upper echelon of uh, interviewers, um, I had to get back with you, you know, because my life wouldn't be complete without doing this. Did you hear that, Frank? I, I, well, that, Coach, uh, I apologize. I have to jump in here. I have to say, um, man, I sit with him, and I just don't see what you're seeing. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't. He doesn't. But no, I, my, my question is this. So, honestly, we have a, a connection, a small connection in a way. Uh, since Steve played for you at UConn, I was actually his offensive coordinator in high school. So okay. I'm, I'm just not seeing what you guys saw as far as recruiting Steve. Uh, tell, me, tell me what you saw in him. My God. Well, he was, he was uh, actually committed to UConn before I got there. He and uh, he, ah. he, he, uh, he committed to uh, uh, Skip Holtz. And then I came uh, in uh, on the job, and we, we still honored his, his commitment. Um, you know, to UConn, and uh, I'm glad we did because uh, he did a great job for us and, you know, hardworking guy and um, somebody who was a, a tough kid, loved to play the game, and, um, you know, uh, was always it – was, it was a pleasure to be around, you know. I mean, there, there were times he'd get on your nerves just like everybody. You absolutely, know? I mean, I his, absolutely. I, I, got on, I got on his nerves. He got on my nerves, you know, but uh, – but you know what? At the end of the day, Steve cared about, you know, doing everything he could to be the best he could be, and then also to doing everything that he could to help our program uh, get to the highest level that we possibly could. And it was never a dull moment. It was always entertaining. Never a dull moment oh, yeah. with me. Never oh, a dull yeah. moment. Coach, you know, I you, could, you, you always I always knew that if I needed if I needed to get a laugh or something like that, I could go to Steve and talk to him, and I could I could you know start laughing about something instant humor perfect that's yep. a, that's what i bring to the table i uh i had wanted to ask because i i know that i know that you're from glen rock pennsylvania and i i am not familiar with glen rock at all and i'm not sure that frank is as well tell me a little bit about glen rock pennsylvania and what it was like growing up there well well it's it's a it's a very small town in South Central uh, Pennsylvania, uh, we sit about five miles north of the uh, Mason-Dixon line. Um, and for people that don't know, that's the Maryland-Pennsylvania line, uh, <laughs> off of uh, about off of Interstate 83. So uh, we have one signal light in the whole town. Uh, went this very very small town, small high school that I went to, but it was a great place to uh, to grow up. Um, you know, you, you knew everybody in the town. Uh, there were three towns that made up uh, our school district, Glen Rock, New Freedom, and Shrewsbury. And um, 
you know, you just, you, you, you drive your bikes to go play basketball downtown in a community center that we had, you know, the, the Bonaire Country Club where we belong to play golf in the summertime, you know, was, was very close. And so it was a very tight knit community and one that everybody knew each other. And, you know, it was just, uh, to me, it was a great place to, to grow up. And, um, you know, even though, like I said, it was a small town, but, uh, you know, one that, uh, everybody had a lot of pride, uh, in the town and, and trying to hardworking, uh, middle-class, you know, people, um, just a great place. And, you know, you obviously played football. Did you play other sports as well? Yeah, I played I played football, basketball, and baseball. And then in the summertime, we spent a lot of time when we played baseball in the after, in the evenings or the afternoons, you know, in uh, everything. But uh, during the day, we were out at uh, Bonaire Country Club and we were playing playing golf. You know, some days we'd play fifty four holes of golf, thirty six. You know, uh, went through the junior golf program, and so. Uh, but yeah, I played I played all three sports and. <laughs> Quite frankly, you know, of the of the sports that I played, football was the one that I liked the least. But that's where I ended up making making my you know making my name. Right, right. You were you were an avid golfer, and I had always wondered, Glen Rock, PA. How did you find Syracuse University, and more so, how did they find you? Um, I I didn't find them, but they 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 found me. Um. I think the Jim Goodfellow, uh, he was the coach that recruited me and he was in, um, Harrisburg and, uh, I don't know. I think he was looking, you know, I made, I was, I think third team all state in the state of Pennsylvania, you know, that my senior year and they saw, they saw that. And then they came down and, um, watched some film and everything else. And the next thing you know, um, they started, they, they were recruiting me and really, you know, I had, I had two offers coming out of high school. I had an offer from university of Delaware and then I had an offer, uh, you know, from Syracuse and, um, I ended up, uh, you know, electing to go to, uh, to Syracuse. And you obviously went up to, I'm sure games and then, uh, took your official visit. What would you say sold you on Syracuse the most? Well, I can still remember that, you know, we played a basketball game on a Friday night and then my mom and my dad and I, we hopped in the car and we drove to Syracuse and it was about, it's a five hour drive going right up interstate 83 to 81 up through uh, Northeast Pennsylvania, Scranton, Wilkes-Barre, Binghamton, Cortland, you know, and then we stayed at the still there it used to be a holiday inn now it's something different the circular hotel right along 81 right there in syracuse and we got in and i don't know it was about two three in the morning and then had started the official visit uh going there and and really the reason i went to syracuse because it was the you know it was a bigger school than and a name school division one school um than delaware delaware was very nice but you know ended up going to syracuse and um you know uh, just because of, you know, it was an independent school at that time playing, you know, Penn State, all the Eastern independents, Pittsburgh, West Virginia, great conference, you know, and it wasn't a conference, but called it the Eastern independents and uh, great competition. Wow. 
And Frank, I believe that was the time right before the dome, right? You weren't there exactly when the dome was completed, were you? No, we, we played in Archibald Stadium. Wow. And uh, Archibald Stadium was a concrete bowl. <laughs> and you, didn't, you, didn't, you sat on the concrete. There, was, there weren't seats. That's right. Uh, you just sat on the concrete and froze your tail off if you sat in the seats. And that's why they, you know, they, you know people drank try to stay warm you know, when, <laughs> when it would get get old and then so yeah we played in Archibald Stadium and then the last game uh was against Navy and uh as soon as that game was over um people rushed the field started tearing everything down people were chiseling them the the seat numbers out of the concrete to take with them and all kinds of stuff and then so my senior year we played every game on the road uh, because we, that's when they, they built the dome right exactly where Archibald Stadium was, right there in oh, the wow. uh, m- middle of campus. So we played, we played every game on the road in 1979. And, uh, our Coach, you, you, don't, you don't have to say the year. We lie on here all the time. I'm 25 <laughs> years old, so you don't, you don't have to say the year. That's okay. <laughs> but we, we played two games, or two of our home games were in the Meadowlands. And two of our home games were in uh, Rich Stadium in Buffalo. And then our other home game, was, which was the last game of the year, was against uh, Boston College at uh, Sholkoff Field in Ithaca. So we were, we were on the road, and we ended up winning enough games to, uh, go, to the bowl, uh, go to a bowl game and went to uh, the Independence Bowl down in Shreveport and beat McNeese State. So um, all in all, it was, a, it was a good career and had a lot of fun, met a lot of good friends and teammates and uh, met my wife there. So... You know, that's, that's got to be a good thing. So, so, Coach, let me ask you, along your college career, maybe even through high school, uh, what was the driving force to keep you in the, the game of football and to, you know, point you towards the coaching field? I know I had a similar experience, and I went coaching all the way for 23 years, but what was your driving force? Well, you know, I, I, went, to, I went to Syracuse as a health and physical education um, you know, student, and you know, I, I've been I was affected by my high school football coach John Gensler and other coaches that I had. But you know, I always, for some reason, I just I wanted to coach and I wanted to be a, a high school phys ed teacher and um, health and phys ed teacher. And uh, you know, I was fortunate because Frank Maloney, who was my head coach um, at Syracuse came to me uh, when the season was over and said, hey, you know, we'd like, like to stay around as a graduate assistant, you know, and, uh, you know, start to coach and do that. And, um, you know, so I'm thinking, okay, if I'm going to go into the high school ranks, you know, having a master's degree would pay me more money to, you know, be able to teach and coach and everything else. So I said, you know what, I might as well stay here and get my master's degree and have somebody else pay for it and take advantage so of it sure how i got into it and then as a ga um you know i was there i was a ga for a year with um with frank and then he got let go at the end of that year and then dick mcpherson came in and um you know i got moved up to uh, a part-time assistant and you know it just kind of you know took off from there i enjoyed what i was doing and um you know was fortunate to coach with some really good people and uh 
it's like anything else. It's uh, connections and uh, you know who you know that you can that can help you advance in your profession. And I just always you know liked the uh, I liked recruiting. I liked um, you know the strategy that was involved. And you know the one thing that was interesting for me and you know Frank Maloney was a, a loved man to death. He's since passed, but uh and stayed in touch with him for you know till the time that he did pass but you know he i was a quarterback and what he told me was he said i'm gonna put you over on defense right because you know offense you played quarterback i'm gonna put you on defense because you know it'll help you in terms of your your growth as a coach and everything else so i went over and was a ga on the defensive side of the ball working with the secondary so that's kind of how i got you know, indoctrinated to that side of the ball and then ended up being on defense, uh, you know, pretty coach defensive backs for really most of my career as an assistant coach. Right. And and let me ask you just a side question here. What would a part-time assistant make per year back in 1980, 81? What was that again? I had trouble uh, oh, hearing. I apologize. What, what would a part-time assistant make uh, financially wise, uh, what, what, in other words, what uh, what did they pay you as a part time assistant back in 1980 or 81? Yeah, I mean, basically, you were a full time coach with a part time pay, and I think <laughs> I don't know, it might, it might it, you you might have got paid like uh, ten thousand dollars or something like that, you know. <laughs> and and you know, and this that's the difference. I mean, when um, when I started when I first started out coaching, um, you know, there I, there was I was there was only one GA. That, that was it. I was the only GA. And then there were two part-time coaches. And then you had, I think it was back then, it was only eight full-time coaches. So, and then the head coach. So you basically had uh, 11 coaches and that was it, you know, and that's all you had. And, you know, you got everybody broke, you broke the games down, you know, the assistant coaches went out on the road recruiting you evaluate, you, you know, you evaluated the film, you did all those things. Um, you know, do you go see kids play on, on Friday night? Um, and it, it's just a whole, it was a whole different, it was a whole different deal, uh, back then than what it is, than what it is today. And you developed a reputation of being an outstanding recruiter very early on. What do you think helped to get that mentality and what drove you to, to go out on the road and, and find those diamonds in the rough? Because, um, you know, Frank and I have talked for the last few weeks about Syracuse in their current state. The draw so much isn't the dome anymore. How do you, no. how, how do you get kids to come to Syracuse, New York and sell them on the program? Now, it's an outstanding education, but it, it can't be easy to get people to come here to play. And, and, a, and a follow-up to that question is, what could you do with all the NIL money that seems to be out there right now as far as recruiting? Granted, it's not not yours, the school's money, but what could you do with that? You know, you're jumping well, the gun. I had the NIL I'm sorry. I, I, I apologize. Well, I think the, the, the thing is, I mean, recruiting is all about relationships. I mean, that was a, that was the thing that I learned uh, from the people I was around. Gary Blackman was a guy that I learned a lot about recruiting from uh, who came to Syracuse and who was at UCLA before that and, and other guys and a guy by the name of Jim Rogers who was on Frank's staff. Um, but it, it's all, it was all about relationships, you know, and, 
and back back then you know you didn't have the internet you didn't have all that mm -hmm. stuff you know you had to find out about guys and you know i had relationships with because uh, I, I had down through eastern pa and back then eastern pa was um you know there was a lot of really good players yes. all the way from from harrisburg up into the coal region scranton wilkesbury uh the lehigh valley um uh, you know those areas so what you did you found out who the sophomores were and you know you talked to the to the coaches but you know i also had a guy ronnie christ who was a writer for the uh uh, Harrisburg Patriot down in Harrisburg who covered things and I got to know him um, really well and so I could get I just got information and then then it was a matter of uh, you know connecting with the kids and you know I was in an age where you know I wasn't I wasn't a whole lot older than some of those those kids in high school maybe five six years older when I first started out and so you know I could relate to them and you know you just you know you find, you know, the moms were very important and you made sure that you, you got in good with the families. And, and um, I mean, there were times that, you know, I'd go to a game down in Scranton, Wilkesbury because I recruited uh, Rocket and Cadre Ismail and I got right. Cadre to come to, to Syracuse. But there was a place down there, a Patty Sports Bar. And I, I spent a lot of time in Patty Sports Bar just, uh, you know, with people from that area, you know, because, again, there are some people down there that got were involved with the kids and, new people and if they could put a good word in for you and it's the same thing down in harrisburg in that, that area i recruited michael owens i spent a lot of time in in carlisle you know just um talking to people and everything else and found out who who was important to those people so that's all it is it, recruiting is just hard work you know it, it's it's hard work and you know i knew if you were gonna i mean i knew if you're gonna be successful as a coach the the, the better players you had the better coach you're gonna be and so but it was just all about developing relationships. Do you think now, especially with the unlimited access you have to players, because there's Twitter, there's Facebook, now there's text messaging, there's no limits on that, there's phone calls. Do you think there's, there's, there's too much contact with these recruits and they, they, mon they may want to be loved up a little too much and, and you can't really turn it off? Or do you, you think that's a good thing because you're always in contact with them, you always know where they stand, and you can see if a landmine's coming a mile away? Well, you know, I'll say this till the day that I, you know, go six feet under, but uh, I, I think the way the recruiting is now, it's a disservice to the kids. I think we're doing more harm to the, <laughs> to the kids than what we are helping them, you know, in terms of, you know, recruiting them when they're in ninth grade and, and all that stuff. And, you know, you couldn't have, you know, contact with them. And now the way everything is, it's just, you know, too many kids are entitled nowadays. And, you know, and you go and, you know, you have these people evaluating kids that are uh, 14, 15, 16 years old. And, you know, this kid's a five star, this kid's a four star, you know, there's kids can't be kids anymore. And, and, um, you know, there's there's a lot of pressure on kids to live up to so-called um, uh, numbers that people are putting on them. When you know a lot of that only has to do with a ranking because there's college coaches that like this kid and they, they want to recruit him. So hey, make him a five star, and he might not be a five star. You know, and and different things along those lines. So uh, Joe Paterno was the guy who really ruined recruiting. Joe and, Paterno. 
Yeah, he was Joe Joe uh, Paterno in Penn State was the first school that started all this early offering, and oh. you know when there was that, there was that period of time where Penn State kind of hit a bad spot because they made a lot of mistakes from offering kids early, and they got kids that weren't as good and didn't continue to develop maybe the way they thought they would, and uh, and that and that's the thing that you know kind of bothers me you know, with the way the game and the recruiting has evolved because, you know, we never really started recruiting kids until, you know, after their senior year, you know, and so you never offered kids until after their senior year, you know, when it was over. I mean, you coached your own players, you know, the season was over, then you went out and you got them to come on official visits and everything else. And now, you know, now kids are, kids are getting, people are, just throwing offers out saying, okay, somebody offers kid. Some schools haven't even watched film on them. They just text the kid, hey, you're offered. They, they don't know anything about him. They don't know grades. They don't know his ability. Just because so-and-so offered him, we got to throw our hat in the ring. You know, and so I just think that the recruiting has gotten so out of hand, and now when you've thrown in, uh, you throw in the name, image, and likeness uh, portion of recruiting, it is just uh, total chaos, in, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, and I would agree. We would make similar mistakes at Holy Cross because we would only watch highlight tapes, and nobody wanted to watch game tapes. We, we would yep. watch the highlight tapes. We would offer based on the highlight tapes, and it was always about the earlier, the earlier, the earlier, the better. And there was no commitment from the kid the kid would say yes and then two weeks before signing day it would be oh i'm going i'm going to bc i i, I changed my mind there was no loyalty there was no honor no. between recruits and it became the wild wild west and nobody has really stepped in to regulate it i know they've tried with the early signing periods but i i, I think that that's done some more harm than good and then combining that with with the transfer portal but um you did an, an excellent job recruiting and then you had, had bounced around and you got to work for some exceptional coaches and i i just wanted to touch on boston college and uh and tom coughlin and and your time there and uh what you took away from him well, Tom coached me at Syracuse. He was my quarterback coach Correct. when I when I played at Syracuse, and um, he's he's a very smart uh, man. He's a very intelligent football coach in terms of different things you would do offensively, and very detail oriented and very technical in terms of you know playing the position of quarterback and and everything else. And um, you know. I, I always, I always tell people that, you know, because people see him, you know, on the sidelines when he was still coaching and, and everything else, said, oh, he must have been hard to work for. I said, he was the easiest guy I ever worked for in my life. And, and the reason was, is he told you what he wanted done, he, what your job was and what he expected, and he let you do your job. And as long as you did your job, you know, he never had a problem. He didn't. You know, mic so, he didn't micromanage. No, no. He 
he allowed you to do your job and you know and and you did it and plus you know he used to tell us he said hey he said when you get your work done leave walk out the front door don't sit there and walk out the back door so you know it wasn't one of these where you're you know staying until midnight and all those sort of things you know you you get your work done and and you do it and you know he wasn't going to waste time i mean that's the one thing he 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 was very organized and you know meetings it was boom 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 and you're out of there you know and god rest his soul dick mcpherson great man but god you hate it i you know it was tough working for him because you wasted so much time and he wasn't he wasn't organized he wasn't really organized you go in there and you talk about oh we got to have peas or carrots with the pregame meal this time and uh <laughs> you know <laughs> stuff like that and and when you're coaching you only have so much time because of recruiting and everything else but tom tom was very easy to work for you know and you know i went with him to uh uh i left syracuse jackson when they made the yeah when well i left syracuse when they made the change from uh dick uh, dick mcpherson to paul pascaloni i went to bc with tom and then went down to jacksonville with him uh down there and you know it's it's ironic because now living here in atlantic beach florida right outside of jacksonville but who lives uh less than a half a mile up the same street right up the road from me is tom coughlin you know and we played golf on wednesday afternoons we played nine holes and uh so you know i still have that relationship with him and he you know he's still you know uh very uh meticulous and very uh, organized in everything he does he's doing a great job with the uh, the J Tom Coughlin J fund where he's raised a ton of money for childhood cancer uh, patients and families and everything else. So, um, but like I said, he's the easiest guy I've ever worked for in my life. So, so coach, would you say that, I mean, everybody in life needs a, a mentor, I guess, and seeing how, and as far as, you know, your eventual building your own program, from the ground up, uh, the success that you had doing that at UConn, would you say that, you know, traveling with Tom along the way from, from him being assistant at SU and the success you had there, then going to BC, more success, Jaguars, second year, you know, you guys are in the championship game. Uh, do you think that sort of lays the blueprint for you as far as someone that you not so much modeled after, but absorbed everything he had to offer and then now put your fingerprint on a program using a lot of his, uh, you know, his visionary techniques. Well, you know, Tom, Tom had certainly had a big influence on me, but you know, I tried to, I tried to take something. I try to take something from everybody that I've worked with that I feel, you know, fits into what I believe and what my personality is, because I feel that you, you have to be who you are. You know, and there's things that Dick McPherson did that uh, I thought were good that I that I took with me and implemented. There was a lot of things that Tom did that, you know, that's, you know, I've, I had. And then George O'Leary, you know, who I, I had worked for. And then also uh, Jim Caldwell, the one year I was up in Detroit, you know, when I ended up coming, going back to Connecticut the second time. But, you know, I was always a firm believer there's things that, that you take from people and you can always learn, you never stop learning, but ultimately it's got to, all those things have to fit what I believe in. And then also into the type of personality, you know, it might be the way you practice or, you know, how you, how you do certain things in the off season or whatever it is. If it's something that, you know, 
like Dick McPherson, he was a master with the, uh, the media, you know, and, you know, he, he did more of that, but there were some other things that he wasn't as strong in just like everybody else. We all have our strengths and weaknesses, but I tried to learn from everybody and take things that I thought, um, that I saw and things that I was around and incorporate them into the style that I wanted to, to have, you know, as a head coach. And then, you know, I think ultimately as a head coach, you know, you have to be a good evaluator of the talent and the people, the abilities of the people that you have that you're coaching and then develop a system that, you know, allows them to be successful because there are certain schemes and things that you can run. But if you don't have the personnel to run them, you're not going to be successful. So there's different things that you have to do. And, and that's kind of, you, you always have to be evolving and you always have to be willing to learn. Um, and again, I think there's, and the, the people you're around, it might be, I don't know how many things you take from them, but I know this, the things that I've taken from people, I thought always would make us was better that we implemented. For, for such a young guy, especially in your career, when did you make a decision or when did you have it in your mind that you wanted to be a head coach, that you wanted to run your own program, that you wanted to take charge, and that you believed enough in yourself that you could do it and have success? Uh, you know, it was a, you know, there was a time there when I, well, when I was at Syracuse, having played there and then I coached there for 11 years, is I was getting, you know, into the um, eighth, ninth, tenth year in those in those areas that, you know, I felt say, hey, you know, this is, you know, you know, I want to be, a, I want to, I want to run my own program someday, you know, and um, so, you know, that's what I wanted, you know, strove to to do, and. Um, you know, one of the things that happened was uh, when I was at uh, when I was at Jacksonville, and you know, with with Tom, it was you know I interviewed for I interviewed at Boston College, at BC, right? And, yeah, at Boston College, and um, I, I can you know remember you know the AD um, calling afterwards and or telling Tom and said, well. The reason I didn't get the job is because I was never a coordinator. Coordinator, which right? Which, which that's a cop out, you know. I mean, if I wasn't good enough, just come out and tell me. That's the problem that I have with ads. You know, none of them. There's, they don't tell you the truth. They tell you everything but the truth. Well, anyhow, they, they they don't know. They don't know well, half of them exactly. So anyhow, so when he, when he told me that, then that's when I said, okay, I want you know, if I'm going to be a head coach, then I'm going to get qualified on paper and. You know, I had a good situation here with the Jaguars when I was down here, and but I decided George O'Leary, who worked together with it uh, at Syracuse and with Frank Maloney, and Tom was on that staff, and oh, wow. you know George was the head coach at Georgia Tech at the time, and he tried to get me to come there as a coordinator, you know, two times before, and I didn't go because of the situations that I was in. But this one, after having that situation with BC, I said, well, you know what, you know. I was always one of these that, hey, you know, I'm not going to sit around waiting for something to happen. I'm going to go try to make it happen. So that's when I left and went to uh, Georgia Tech so I could get qualified on paper and to, went there as a defensive coordinator in 1998. 98, and right. for that one year. And so now 
insecure I was. So if I interview for a job, nobody can say, well, you've never been a coordinator before because, well, now I do. I have the coordinator behind my name. And then that's when the Yukon job opened up and uh, Lou Perkins, um, you know, interviewed me and, and hired me. But, and I, you know, I don't know if I wouldn't have taken that coordinator's job at Georgia Tech you know, when an opportunity might have unfolded. And, uh, but I just said, you know what, I'm going to get qualified on paper because I'm not going to have somebody tell me that, hey, you know, we can't hire you because you've never been a coordinator. So, But in the grand scheme of things, you wouldn't place that much emphasis on being a coordinator as correlated to being a successful head coach. No, no, not at all. You know, I don't, I think, you know, I don't think that's necessarily uh, true because, you know, one of the things that you find out and being in this profession, being in the profession for 42 years before I retired two years ago is there's, there's guys that are coordinators who are great coordinators, right? but they're, but they're not going to be good head coaches because, you know, they don't, they don't see the big picture, you know, they just can. And, and I've been around some guys that are great coordinators, and there's some guys that are great coordinators who don't want the, to be a head coach. They don't want that responsibility. They just want to, um, you know, focus on that one side of the ball. But there's guys that are assistant coaches who have that ability to see that. So, no, I don't think you have to be a coordinator in order to be a head coach, you know. And, um, you know, that's just something that I think that um, people used as a – is a is an out if they didn't want to hire somebody but there's there's a lot of good coaches that aren't coordinators that would be in my opinion really good head coaches now i think when you came to uconn in late 98 early 99 there were a little smoke and mirrors going on the 98 team had a lot of success but i would say especially there were some definite cultural problems and you came in and you really set the tone and you really tried to change the culture because it, it, it was deficient. It needed a lot of work and you weren't afraid to step in and do what needed to be done to eradicate that. Well, you know, I, I was always, you know, told by uh, guys that I respected uh, in the profession and guys that I've worked with or who were friends of mine you know, that said, hey, you know, when you go in, you need to do it your way, you know, right from the beginning. And, yeah, they were at UConn, that 98 team was um, was a playoff team in FCS and right. lost a lot and lost a lot of um, a lot of seniors that year. Um, and so, you know, but we were going to be an FCS team that was transitioning to an FBS FBS, team. right. And so and so that was the thing that, you know, Lou Perkins, who was the A D, who was the best A D that I that Ever. I had yeah. you know, in terms of <clears throat> you know, when I was a head coach and working for, he had a plan and he had a vision for what wanted to take place by making that jump from FCS to FBS. Um so you know, he got it. He understood it. So, yeah, you know, we made we made some tough decisions in terms of uh, what we were going to do and how we were going to do it. And uh, 
you know, not everybody saw eye to eye and, you know, uh, in terms of what we wanted to do, but in terms of for where we wanted to go and what we wanted to accomplish, it was something that I felt that we, you know, that we had to do. And that was the way that we needed to, to go. So that's what we did. But again, you know, you had the backing of the uh, athletic director and I, and I can still remember Steve that, I got called, you know, I went in to see Lou and we were talking and Jeff Hathaway, who was the associate AD, yeah. he was there and, and we were talking and Lou, Lou said to me, he says, Randy, and I can't, I think it might've been my second year there. He said, you know, I don't, I don't care about this year or next year in terms of where we are. I just want to be able to start winning by, you know, I think it was like year four, you know, and because we were going to make that transition. And I said, well, will you put that in writing? And he said, yeah. And Jeff Hathaway said, no, no, don't no. put that in writing. Don't put that in writing. You know, oh, and, Mr. Hathaway. And, and, and I think I still have the, I think I still have the paper somewhere, but, you know, but, but Lou got it. He understood it. You know, you were building, you were building something for the long term. And, you know, nowadays it's, you know, people, you don't, you don't have ADs like that. You don't have people like that. It's all about, what can you do for me today? And, and that's it. You know, there's a lot of these, these ADs don't have a vision, don't have an understanding of, of what it takes and, and really who you are and what is that particular school. And, you know, that's the, you know, that's the thing you were talking about Syracuse, you know, it's going to be hard for Syracuse to ever get back to where they once were, because there's a lot of things from the standpoint of uh, recruits, you know, Central New York is, you know, is a very tough place to, to recruit student yeah. athletes, and and you know the state of New York, Eastern PA, you know Pennsylvania, <coughs> the Northeast. It's not a it's not a hotbed for for football anymore. You know, there's not a lot of good football players up in those areas. A lot of them now, <coughs> you know, you'll get kids that every a lot of these prep schools are getting kids, but then they're being recruited by everybody across the country. But as far as high school talent, you know, there's not this, you know, Buffalo, when I was at Syracuse, Buffalo and Rochester, we got a ton of kids from there. You, there's not many kids at all from Buffalo or Rochester anymore going to Division One, you know, and, and even down through the coal region. The coal region isn't what it used to be. And um, so it's hard because the further you have to go, um, the harder it is. But now with the name, image, and likeness, you know, can you go buy players? Yeah, but you can go buy players, but are you buying the right ones? And then, and then, you know, you gotta, you gotta, if you, if you don't win, doesn't matter how much you pay somebody, they're probably going to go somewhere else, you know, if they're, if those other places are winning. So there's a whole different dynamic that goes on today than what took place, you know, years ago. The, the first few years we were at UConn, it was, it was an uphill battle. It was a struggle. And, and, you know, we were outmanned. And we were going down and, you know, we were playing Virginia Tech. We were playing Boston College. We were playing Miami. And it was always, always a struggle. And the one thing I always noticed, you know, we would get beat by UMass and you never wavered in your message, whether it was wave the, raise the bar or believing in yourself. You never seemed to doubt that you knew in your heart of hearts that you were gonna get it done, you were gonna be successful, 
and, and we were going to have a great program. And, and I just uh, couldn't fathom that after some of the shellackings we took. You never wavered in your support for the, pro for the program or your belief that I'm going to find a way to get it done. I'll stay up 48 hours a day if I have to. I am going to get it done. What brought on that mentality? Uh, I think it is the way I was brought up and where I was brought up, getting back to Glenrock. You know, we were always the underdog, you know, around our county. You know, they, they used to call us the farmers, you know, when we go to play school because we did. It was a it's kind of a lot of farm area around there, but we were always the underdog. Um, nobody ever expected you to, to win. So you had that, I had that mentality was, okay, you tell me I can't do something, you know, I'm going to show you. You know, yeah, and, uh, yeah. you know, that's, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what's, um, what you put up there. We're going to, we're going to, I'm going to find a way and we're going to find a way to come out on top, you know? And, uh, I think that was something that was always instilled in me from, you know, my early years of where I grew up and what I went through going through, you know, high school. And then even, even when we were at, uh, when I was playing at Syracuse, I mean, we had, we had Archibald Stadium. That was the worst stadium in the country. <laughs> the, the, the Manly Fieldhouse and where, where we trained was a dump. I mean, Frank Maloney didn't get as much credit as he should have back then, but the facilities that he inherited and what he inherited uh, from Coach Schwartzwalder, I mean, it was embarrassing. And to have the talent that we had there, uh, Joe Morris and Art Monk, Bill Hurley, Gary Anderson, you know, and a bunch of other people, Craig Wolfley, Jim Collins. I mean, we had some really good players there. And for what Frank to do, we ended up building, getting to that, that year um, where we went to the bowl game. And then, you know, the next year we opened up the dome and, and Joe Morris runs into the wall against Colgate and right. busts his shoulder up and we lose him for the year, you know, and then Jake Crowham was the AD and he wanted to bring his own guy in, which he, that's hey, his prerogative is the, is the AD. But Frank never, but Frank never, if Frank had the facilities and the dome and all that stuff to, to work with, you know, Syracuse would have been a powerhouse, you know, with him being there, but didn't have those resources. And, you know, when we went to, when I went to Connecticut, and again, gets back to what I always believed in, in Lou Perkins, because he had a vision and understood it, that, you know, we were going to have a, a, a stadium, you know, there in East Hartford. It wasn't, you wished it was on campus, it wasn't. But we had a really good stadium in East Hartford there, Rensselaer Field. With the, it was great because of tailgating, people could get to it, everything else. And then when, you know, we got we got uh, the Burton family involved to build the Burton family football complex to have the facilities. Well, you know, you you knew you had the support of the AD. You knew you had the support of the university. Phil Austin was the president at the time, and you had uh, Governor Rowland, you know, who was the governor of the state of Connecticut everybody was in tune to what needed to to be done and to make that work because lou was smart enough to have the vision that he knew football was the driving force even though basketball was king at uconn but without football being in a major conference you know basketball might not be sustainable you know uh, and have the same success. Women's was always going to be because, but with men's, it helps. But with the, where the money was, the money was Revenue. in football yeah. because of the TV contracts. That's right. And coach, let me ask you, 
Uh, you touched upon the support from the AD all the way on down. Um, and I think the next step as far as if I'm thinking of building a program is you probably inherited a half or three quarters of the staff from uh, Coach Holtz and the leftovers. But did you bust out your Rolodex and start finding the correct guys to put in place uh, as your coordinators and your assistants? Because that's a, that's a key factor in trying to build kids from the bottom up. Yeah, I mean, as a head coach, you got to have good people around you because is, is, is in terms of uh, what you want to do, you can't sit there, to me, you can't sit there and, and run an offense, run the defense, run the special teams, do all those sort of things, you know. So to me, it was you, you always went out and tried to hire, you know, good people, you know, and then let them do their job and uh, support them in a way that you could. And so I think you're always, you always, you know, we're evaluating people. You're always looking to say, okay, you know, hey, if I got a head job, who would I take? And then also, even if you lost somebody, you know, you'd say you'd want to replace them with this guy. So you always kept a list of, I always kept a list of, you know, the different positions and guys that, you know, whether it's a secondary coach, a offensive coordinator, a defensive coordinator, a position coach. Yeah, you always kept a list of, of people that you say, okay, here's who I'd like to, you know, try to hire if the opportunity presented itself. Coach, did you ever get any uh, names and numbers of coaches looking for jobs at the National Coaching Convention? I know they put up those, those bulletin boards that I would see hundreds of names and numbers of, uh, of guys just looking for an opportunity to, uh, you know, get an interview. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> you're always getting hit up by, you know, whether you're getting resumes or everything else. And, you know, and, and sometimes, you know, if, if you, you know, the one thing you can't, you can't be afraid to do is pick up the phone. If you know of somebody and pick the phone up and see if they would have an interest in, in coming, you know, to, to work for you or, um, you know, and a lot of times you just get around people and, you know, I always tried to just try to listen as much as I could to hear what people had to say, because, you know, a lot of times you can pick up a lot more from, you know, uh, you know, it's the old saying, you have two ears and one mouth, so you're better off listening twice as much as you speak. And so that's the one thing, because, again, you got to have good people. And, and, and now, especially nowadays, <coughs> and the last, I don't know how many years that I was a head coach, but the, the, the duties of a head coach and what you have to go through nowadays with uh, media and everything and being, you know, being the voice of the program and being the eyes and ears of the program, you know, it's hard to sit there and, and, you know, like I said, if you're running the offense or the defense, you know, when something comes up, you know, you got to leave that room. And if you're calling those plays, yeah, that makes it hard. Right. You know, it makes it hard for the assistant coaches too, to, to do the things that they're supposed to do. So, but yeah, the, the, the more you can hire better people, the better off you're going to be. I, uh, I, I'm good friends with Joe Villapiano. I talk with him over at uh, Cornell. And uh, we were up at good old Old Forge over the summer, and uh, we were remarking. It's just incredible to me how at such a young age you were able to get a stadium built within the first four years, and then you got the Burton Complex built. And UConn isn't known for an endless supply of alumni funding. 
I, I'm just amazed at how you were able to, to do that, how that project took place, how much you had to go around the country, you know, shaking hands, kissing babies to get that done because UConn just it, it doesn't have that money. And you were able to get a state-of-the-art stadium. You were able to get the Burton Complex. And, you know, I remember when I was at Holy Cross a few years ago, UConn was still like the best indoor complex in the Northeast. And you were able to do that in such a short time. Well, you know, a lot of the credit, you know, with the stadium goes to, uh, you know, Lou Perkins. Because he and, believed, right. Yeah, and and, and Governor Rowland, you right. know, and, and then Phil Austin, you know, who – who, uh, but it was Lou because of his urging and everything, knowing that. And, you know, and I, I can still remember Steve, you know, being at the, uh, down at the Capitol building when the vote was going through. I'm sitting in the governor's office. Lou and I are sitting <laughs> in the governor's office, you know, and, you know, big, the big Billy Bass thing, you know, the thing that you mount on the wall, yeah. you hit that, don't worry, be happy or whatever, you know. He had that in his office, the governor. And it's like, and, you know, those guys have, Full, uh, full-time job, the legislatures and all that stuff. And, you know, Martin Looney, I can still remember him. He was one of the big Democrats. I think he still might be, but uh, he was teaching a class. So they, they had to wait for him to get done with his class at <laughs> night to come back and, and vote, you know, and, and it, it was going to pass. It's just the, the, you know, all the BS that you go through with everybody getting up to be on record and all those sort of things. But a lot of it was, you know, Tom Ritter, who was speaker at the time, I think, and, uh, and Governor Rowland. I mean, those guys, you know, were great. And then, like I said, with Lou, so getting the stadium done. But then, you know, and Lou understood that, and Phil Austin understood that if you were, if you, if, you know, they just weren't going to go into FBS, into the Big East, and say, well, we're in this, but we're not going to give you a chance to compete. Correct. Well, by having the Burton Family Football Complex, you know, that was going to give us a chance to, just not be a team in the Big East, it was going to give us a chance to compete in the Big East. And, and this was the one thing that I learned over the years. And, and that was a lot of it stemmed from when I was at, uh, at uh, Syracuse and then I was at BC. And, you know, a lot of these places, the facilities weren't very good. No. And at Syracuse, at Syracuse, they just kept piecemealing everything, and they're still piecemealing things. I mean, a teammate of mine just gave $26 million, John Lally, and they're going to build it, but it's not going to be a standalone building. And, you know, so if we were going to build something, you know, we were going to build something that gave us the best opportunity to attract kids there, gave us the best opportunity to get these kids to be the best person, the best student, the best uh, player they could be. And with the, you know, people today – that I've bumped into say, coach, the Burton family football complex, you know, is, is still as good as any complex oh, anywhere. Is. Somebody, somebody might have something as good, but nobody has anything better. Now, some people, it might be a little bit more square footage and things like that, but in terms of the functionality and everything else, which you have, there was a guy I ran into, I was just at the uh, Stanford uh, Colorado game out of Colorado. Cause my son, Corey coaches, right. at, uh, Stanford so I was just out at that game on Friday night and I was talking to one of the uh, one of the guys uh, on the Stanford staff and he was telling me because he was he was at UConn for just a year and then left and came to Stanford 
and he was saying, Coach, he said, that facility is as good a facility as any way I've ever been or any, any I've ever seen, you know. And so that was the thing. We did it right the first time so you wouldn't have to piecemeal and everything else. And that's what a lot of people do. They take shortcuts, but, you know, that gets back to Lou Perkins and saying, hey, you're going to have everything that you need in order to win and, and win at a high level. And so, you know, we, we ended up having that, and then we were able to recruit better, and then we were able to develop kids and, and do a good job in recruiting and finding kids who had ability who might have been a little bit undersized or a, bit, a little bit underweight or whatever, but had that work ethic and had that mentality to say, hey, I want to be as good as I can be. Yeah, and I, I know we got Dan Orlovsky, who was a game changer, but like you said, the one thing that UConn always did well was develop players. We always develop players. We always had four and five years got guys who put in the work, who put in the effort, who wanted to be on the field. And unfortunately, um, Mr. Perkins left, I believe, after 02 or 03, and we got stuck with the other guy. How much changed when Mr. Hathaway took over? Did, did he not believe as much in football? Was he more focused on basketball? Was he more focused on the school and, and putting buildings up? Because it just seemed like it was a complete change in mentality with where he wanted to go with UConn Athletics. Well, the best way to describe it, Steve, is that um, Lou Perkins was a coach's AD. Right. You know? Yep. And Jeff Hathaway was a PR AD, basically. Well, he was an, admin and, he was an administrator. <laughs> yeah, he was an administrative, uh, you know, person. So, and, and you know, and Jeff, and Jeff Hathaway, you know, didn't understand that football was what drove the bus. And, you know, I'll be the first one to say that, hey, you know, UConn's, um, you know, basketball prowess is outstanding. In women's, it's unmatched. Unmatched in men's, what they've sure. done is is very, very good. But Jeff never, Jeff never understood, and never saw the big picture of what was going to happen with college athletics. And so when you had BC and you had Syracuse and you had those people going to the ACC you know, that we're going to go to the ACC and do that, you know, that was kind of, I could see where, you know, it wasn't going to be a situation where football was really going to be able to sustain, you know, what it was doing because with conference realignment and everything else, you know, UConn was never going to get out of the, they weren't going to leave the Big East. They were too uh, married to the Big East to, to sever that tie and say that, get away from the basketball. And, and that was one of the things that hurt the Big East was the standpoint that, you know, they wanted, Penn State wanted to join, but they didn't, right. they didn't, they didn't want them to join and make an all sports conference. Well, you know, they could have been ahead of the time with all that stuff, but, you know, uh, the powers to be within the, the conference office and then the campus offices didn't allow that to happen. And I just, I just saw where, you know, I didn't think moving forward, that you were going to be able to do, continue to do the things that we did coming off the uh, Fiesta Bowl, you know, winning the, the Big East and kind of going to the Fiesta Bowl, 
that you were going to be able to continue to do that under the leadership that was there at that time. Hindsight being 2020, would you have liked to have joined another conference? Did you see another conference that, that may have fit where UConn was going or where, where it could have been going? Yeah, the ACC. You, you would have you joined know, the ACC. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but Gene DiFilippo at Boston College outmaneuvered, you know, UConn at the time. You know, he, he, you know, he was willing to, to, you know, make a good decision, which you see what's happened. And you see where, you know, even though BC hasn't been winning, they're, they're getting, they're getting a, a big check every year from the ACC, right. you know, and, and, and UConn is now is an independent, which you can't, you can't be an independent in football no. and survive. You can't do it. You're losing too much money. You're losing too much money. Yeah, the revenue streams are, are too huge right now in, from conferences to not be aligned with. I mean, look what's happening to the Pac-12 right now. I mean, in, in yeah. two years' time, that that won't even be, there will not be a conference there. Um, yeah, I mean it. It's all it's it's it is it's all it's all about the money now. I mean, and it's you know it's crazy, but uh, I mean that's that's the, that's the way of the college athletics right now. The the one thing that had always bothered me after leaving UConn. The, uh, the Connecticut media, I always felt that they were harsh on you, unfair to you, kind of short with you. Why don't you think they would listen or would give you the time to talk or would give you a fair interview? It, it always, you know, they always tried to control the narrative. And I know all media does right, that. Right, right. But it, it just seemed, you know, with basketball, it was all lovey-dovey and they're the greatest things since sliced bread. And I know they've won national championships. But you got football who's fighting tooth and nail for everything they've got. You went to a number of bowl games year after year. And it just it, it, it wasn't enough for them. They always found something to complain about. Well, probably the reason why Steve – is because I wasn't going to give them what they wanted right. to hear, <laughs> you know, and it, it's the way that I was brought up, you know, my, my dad, you know, you be upfront and honest with people. And, and that's probably one of the things where, you know, with the media, I didn't have a great reputation with the media because I wouldn't tell them what they wanted to hear. I wouldn't, I would tell them the truth, you know, and, you know, and to this day, I just, I, I feel good about, what I've done because the one thing, and, and this is what I would do in recruiting, you know this, and even after you, you left, I, I was went and I, I, I'm straight up with people. I said, I'm going to tell you what you need to hear. I'm not going to tell you what you want to hear, you know? And, and the problem is the truth hurts people. You know, it really does. And, you know, they, people don't want to hear the truth. And, you know, I'd sit there and tell the truth, and then they would, you know, they didn't like that. And, you know, and most of the time, you know, a lot of those people, they had no clue about football anyhow. None. You no. know, and, you know, and, you know, I, I still remember a guy that was a writer down in Wilkesbury that I got to know. And, and he always told me this. He said, you know, Randy, it's the power of the pen, you know, and I didn't have the pen. But, you know, I had I had one guy up there that was a good guy, Chuck Banning with the New London Day. You know, you could talk to him. But you know, all these people, they wanted the inside scoop. I'm not going to give you any inside scoop. I'm not going to play that game. They want the, the dirt. Only yeah. I, the only people that I have loyalty to are the players. But, you know, and you know it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you what you, what you, you know, I'm going to be brutally honest with you. And I'm going to tell the truth. And 
you know, and this and that start and even back then, you couldn't do that. And then when I went to Maryland, that was even worse because I found out what it was like inside of 495 in, in, you know, down there, that swamp, you know, with the media and everything else. I mean, I can see why we have, I mean, I saw all the problems down there. I can see why there's big problems in Washington, D.C. I lived there, you know, but... You it know, morphs. It yeah, morphs. It just grows yeah, and grows and, and grows. But 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 people people don't want to hear the truth. And when you get people that tell the truth and 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 don't sugarcoat it and tell it like it is, they get ostracized more than than. But the people who bullshit and say whatever they to make them look good, themselves look good and everything else, nobody nobody takes them to task. When you when you did go to Maryland, you were doing some good things. Did you have any hesitancy about the the contract extension and staying there? In the back of your mind, were you wondering if, if someone was coming for me or if it would last? Were there any concerns like that? Because it, it was a tough situation, and it, it, it's not the easiest place at all to win, and especially when you're talking facilities and all that. Was that always in the back of your mind before you signed the extension and, and we're going to stay for five years? Um, well, I ended up going down to Maryland because I grew up as a Maryland fan. Right. You know? no, I mean, that was your dream. I, I was a Maryland fan growing up because of where I was at. And then plus my, my dad had passed away. Um, and so my mom was down there. So it got me closer to home and she'd be able to come to all the games and the home games and everything else. And, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, you're in the ACC and you have a, you have a chance to compete, you know, there. Um, and, uh, but, you know, they never, they never had the money at Maryland to compete the way they needed to. Um, and, and I, and I like my time there, but Maryland is, was a, to me is a wannabe that doesn't know how to be. And, um, you know, so we make the move to go to the Big Ten because of money, and right. it got them out. It got them out of debt because they were going to get a big, a big paycheck and everything else. But you still didn't have facilities, you know, um, there or anything along those lines that you need to compete. And then, you know, you go to the Big Ten, and you're in a in a division with Ohio State, Penn State, uh, <laughs> Michigan, Michigan, yeah. Michigan State. You know, so so basically, right there, you're you're gonna the best you can be is five, and then you're competing with Rutgers and Indiana for that fifth spot. Because if if those four teams, Michigan State's got some issues right now, but those four teams, it's not gonna be any better than number five there. Now we did beat Michigan and Penn State in the same year, the one year that I was there, and never beat Penn State up there, and we did it. Right. Um, but you know, you make that move, and it's like. And you have the facilities you have. How are you going to compete? Yeah, you're 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 making the money, but if you're not making an investment, then fortunately, after I left, a few you know, four or five years after, three or four or five years after I left, Kevin uh, Kevin Plank put forth money, and now they've done some things there that have helped themselves. But still, their stadium they still don't draw because you're in a pro town, and and now you're going to get Washington and Oregon in there, and it's going to be. Very, very hard to win. You're not going to win a championship there. You know, I mean, to me, it's just not going to happen. So, um, and again, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, you, you have an AD there that, um, 
really doesn't didn't understand certain things. Uh, but you know, hey, it is what it is. There, you know, we recruited Stefan Diggs. We recruited him and coached did, him yeah. and. Some, some other DJ Moore was a kid we recruited who's with the Bears now. So we did some good things there. It's just that it's a very difficult place. And Mike's, Mike's done a good job this year. They had a little slip uh, this past weekend against Illinois, but it's tough. It's a, that is, that is a, it is a tough job, but I, I always tell, I always tell people this. I said, I think I've probably coached in more as a head coach. I went to UConn. I coached in the FCS Yankee conference or, at that time and uh for one year then we were independent then we went to the big east then i then i leave and i go to maryland i coach in the acc then we go to the big, big 10, 10 yeah and then and then um uh, come back to yukon and we're in the american conference and then we go from the american conference to an independent so in those three jobs i was in seven different conferences in the three, three jobs, the three jobs that I had. That's like you know, a that's a roulette. It's a game of roulette. You what, know, it, it's crazy. What is your opinion on that? Because Frank and I have talked about it multiple times. The jumping of conferences year in and year out, and you know the possibility of the five superpower conferences. And I think it takes away from the Syracuses, from the BCs having a chance i mean even west virginia my god when 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 you played west virginia when they had steve slayton and pat white they were elite west virginia hasn't been elite in in a while and it took away from some of those elite teams and, and you know the u is finally starting to come back but you have these power power conferences and teams are just beating up on each other and no one is really standing out except the best of the best yeah i mean I think there's probably, you know, it's, you know, I, I, it's all about the money. It's all about it is, how much money they get. Yeah. yeah, it's all about the TV money, and that's why the expanded. If you can't bring, that's why UConn wasn't going to go to the Big 12 because they don't bring anything to the table, you know, in terms of uh, market-wise, in terms of, you know, when they could bring those other teams in. But it's, it's all about the money for TV, and if TV TV's driving it, what's doing it the the networks are driving it because it's do you have television sets in your area and that's why maryland that's why maryland got to the big 10 and rutgers because of their location it wasn't because of you know all the winning or anything that they've done they were aau schools too but you know i mean it's all about it's all about the tv sets and um it's just but yeah i think you're gonna see it's it's pro football well it is but i mean it is they professional professionalized college athletics now and i think you're going to see in the near future where you're going to see you know those maybe it's power four now that they're all going to break off and go in their certain thing and there'll be another division you know where those people can have their own playoff and they should because that's where you know they can have success because the bowl games are a joke i mean now it's like everybody gets a trophy you win six you win 50 percent of your <laughs> yeah, game you get to yeah. go to a bowl game so let's Let's give everybody a participation trophy like they do with youth sports now. That's right. That's garbage. And and like you said, I think the, the FCS, FBS, I think there's a, there's going to be a subdivision in Division One. Like you said, I think right. the, there's the five conferences, and the rest of them will have to reform conferences to have a, a sub-tier uh, sort of playoff scenario or regular season scenario. And I think they're, they're, they're whacking it up to where almost there's going to be an extra division in football. Yeah. 
And and now, and then, like I said, with the NLI, I mean, you're buying players, and now basically cheating is legal, you know, is what they've done. I mean, people were buying players before, and it was illegal. Right, now it's legal. Right, right. So, yeah, absolutely. So now, you know, I mean, how about this? I was reading last night. So we were at the Stanford-Colorado game, and great win by Stanford coming back. They were down 29. Oh, oh, unbelievable. Back. Had to be one of the best in program anyhow, history. So I'm coming back last night in the plane, and I'm reading this thing that put out that supposedly – the quarterback Sanders quarterback at halftime on his Instagram account, it was posted about buying a, a hoodie for a hundred bucks that had some kind of saying on, but it was put out at halftime. So is that the kid doing that? Or is that his marketing people doing that? Because here it is. Right. I mean, this is what this has come to oh, now, I know. you yeah. know, yeah. and, and you got kids. I mean, it just, and now the NCAA just passed last week. I saw, where if you want to bring 85 new kids in in one year, you can. So basically, you, you, you sign these, you bring these kids in, you offer them a scholarship. If they're not good enough after a year or two years or whatever, you just tell them, hey, you're done. I mean, it's, it has nothing to do with education anymore. It has, don't call it college athletic. Call it semi-pro, you know, because right. or whatever. But it, it has nothing to do with what college athletics stood for, you know, as being – what it was. And, and I'll tell you, but I do say this is these kids are employees of the university. They should unionize because when I played the game, you played 10 games, you were home for Thanksgiving. You didn't play over Thanksgiving. You were home for the summer. You know, now these kids play 12 games, you know, you got the conference championship. And then if you go to the playoff, you're going to have two or three more games on top of that. So they, they're not going to be home for Thanksgiving. Some of them aren't going to be home for Christmas. They're going to be there in the summertime. So, you know, they are. They should be they're, – they're employees of the university. So they should get paid. And, you know, I was an advocate for when I was a head coach to give these kids a stipend, give them a $10,000, $20,000 stipend in terms yeah. of their scholarship. And if you would have done that at that point in time, you might not have some of these issues, but people didn't want to – do any of that stuff now they got bigger problems than what they ever thought they would have with no, all the stuff that's going on ed o'bannon changed the whole landscape of, of college lawsuit, athletics yeah. with the lawsuit but i mean bottom line i don't see how they couldn't envision this but once you allow money to infiltrate like this you've opened pandora's box now yep. anything can happen coach i wanted to get your thought quickly on the transfer portal because i just think it's it's gotten a little outrageous you know, three schools in four years. They're they're trying to curtail it. They're trying to um, they're trying to shorten the period of when you can enter the transfer portal. But you mentioned Colorado. Colorado had 68 new players on their team from last year, and it, it's it's turned into free agency. Yeah, I mean. I don't, I think if a kid wants to transfer, you know, there should be some kind of a, you have to sit a year that you used to have. Um, but uh, I, I, I think it's ruined, I think it's ruined the, the game. I was talking to, um, I was talking to somebody, uh, they knew I was at the game and they called me and afterwards or whatever. And they were telling me that, uh, you know, he knows somebody that a kid on a team right now that, uh, there's a, a player from another school who's calling that kid say hey why don't you get in the portal come here so <laughs> yeah. i mean you 
you got all this stuff going on and you know there's tampering galore you know happening you know these kids have agents you know now and I mean, it just—I don't know. You got, you got to glad. recruit your own kids. You yeah, got to recruit your own kids. Do. But does it make spend, sense? You have to spend more time recruiting your own kids. And and here's the other thing: is I'm glad I'm on the outside looking in now because when I was at least when I was in it up until the last few years, it was it was football and it was doing things for the right reasons. You know, now it's it's not that anymore, in my opinion. But you know, you take a look. If this isn't professionalized now because of the name, image, and likeness, because of the transfer portal, plus take a look at the size of these staffs that oh, they're people the, have now. The they analysts. Have a, they, they have a <laughs> high school scouting staff. They have a portal scouting staff. They have general managers. They have personnel directors. They have all these analysts and everything else. The college college staffs are bigger than pro staffs. I mean, it's... A, and. It's unbelievable. Frank, how come we can't get hired? I have no I have idea whatsoever. We bring, bring so much to the get, table. We can't get a job. My, my feeling is that all this combined just makes the NCAA athletic kingdom look sleazy. It just looks sleazy. Well, they, the like, NCAA has at no power. The only thing the NCAA has power over is that basketball tournament. Otherwise, they just sit back and say, hey, do whatever yeah. you want. Right. Well, see, that's the, that's the, whole, that's the whole thing. There is nobody – there is nobody in charge of college football. And, but, but the thing is that the college football follows the rules of what the NCAA. And then how about this? The big entity that college football is, and even college basketball, you know, the people that are running it are part-time employees because they all have a day job at the universities <laughs> yeah, that, they, <laughs> that they do. So you have this big, you know, big enterprise, and you don't have people that are making the decisions who are full-time workers, you know, for that enterprise. That That's really crazy. Jeez, it's collusion. Coach, I wanted to give you a minute to talk about uh, your son. He's uh, he's at Stanford. Um, he's been coaching several years now. How's he doing? How's he like it there? What's his experience been? He's uh, he's doing good. You know, they like you said, they had a big win. Huge win. Uh, uh, yes. Uh, and uh, Friday night. And uh, he loves coaching. I mean, he... He grew up in it. I didn't force him in that direction. It's a passion that he has, and he loves it. You know, he wants to get back. Right now, he's an analyst. Uh, he coached five years for me as a tight end coach, did a great job recruiting yes. and coaching. Um, he wants to get back on the field, you know, coaching. And, you know, he knows he's just got to bide his time and keep doing what he's doing. But he's, he's working for good people out there at Stanford. He's at a, in a good place. He loves the area. Um, you know, I was glad to see Stanford land on their feet, at least in the ACC. So now they'll play some games here, more games on the East Coast, which I'll be able to get to see. But, um, you know, but no, he's doing good and he does a good job and, you know, really happy for him. And then, you know, it's, it's interesting because my daughter, she works for the Peach Bowl. She's the director of events right. for uh, the Peach Bowl. And so both the kids, because of what I was involved with was around it. Now they're both involved in in football <laughs> no know, she so. she loved it she loved it I, I just can't imagine logistically stanford <laughs> playing in the acc well, they, they have to ch it can't be called the uh, atlantic coast conference i mean or, that's that's <laughs> absurd they're gonna well, be flying it, cross country it, it won't be bad from a football standpoint because you know you're, you're you're gonna play you know only so many games you know 
across, you know, do that. The, the pro teams, you know, have to do it and all those sort of things. But, uh, um, you know, it, it's, I think it's going to be harder on Olympic sports and things like that. Right. Basketball, though. Basketball, they'll go in and play a game on a Friday and play a game on a Sunday or something like that on the East Coast and do that. And then I've heard some things where they're going to bring teams to, in the Olympic sports, bring teams together, say in Dallas at certain places, and go in there and play competitions like that. So, um, But, again, you know, they're better off being there than what they would be if they didn't have a conference. And that's, yeah. you know, that's a sad part of it. And the sad part about it is when you look at it and, you know, Here's the Pac-12. If you take a look at them, look at how strong that conference is, you know, this year. And the number of ranked teams that they have. And here, that's, that's imploding. That, that's probably the best football conference going this year is the Pac-12. And right. as, of, as of next year, it's no longer intact because of, because of the money, because of TV dollars. Yeah. And, uh, Coach, I just was curious. So what is your handicap right now? My my index is five point uh, three. Can you believe five point three? That's really good. Yeah, that's I had it down as low impressive. as a four point three. Wow. So it, you know, so yeah, it's uh, I love it. I, you know, I had you know my passion now is uh, playing golf and and traveling. You know, when I was coaching, my passion was coaching, and once I got done with that, I you know I don't even I don't I only watch the Red Zone Channel on Sundays in college. I unless my son's playing. I, you know, I'll watch Stanford or if a, a peach, I'll go to the uh, Peach Bowl and do that. But other than that, I really don't watch much fo- football at all, you know, well, so. I can't blame you but because. I like the Red Zone Channel. I like the Red Zone <laughs> Channel because there's no commercials. Jacksonville, <laughs> that's right. And Jacksonville is just a beautiful, I was just there last year. It's just a beautiful area. Beautiful area. Oh, yeah. I mean, I walk, I walk outside my house and take a left and walk down like 30 yards and then I'll walk another 20 and I'm on the beach. So Jeez, I fantastic. can't complain. Fantastic. Good for you. Yep. So realistically, um, you get a call from UMass at the end of the year and they're offering you a head coaching job. They're, they're, we're, we're still not coming back. You're, 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 no. you're standing by. UMass, how much money would UMass have to cough up to get coach to come out of retirement? <laughs> I'm just, I'm just well. pitching something. I'm pitching something. <laughs> I, well, I, I think I, no, I think it's I, there. I, would, I, I am done. I am done with that. I had my time. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the relationships with you know Steve and all the players that I've coached and being able to watch, see what they've done with their lives and yeah. moved on and everything else. And you know, I like I said, I you know, I got a routine down that I that I really love. And nope, I, I don't. I wouldn't. I, you couldn't pay me no, enough it, money. Good you for know, you. to go anywhere, That's you know, right. and, and get involved with what, with what it's all about right now. You know, I just. Cause it's not about know. the kids anymore. It really no. is. No, it isn't. No. no, it's not. It's not about developing kids. I mean, that's the thing, you know, with what they've done, you, you're not even developing kids in terms of what you're trying to do to make them adults. You know, I mean, no. it has nothing to do with making it has nothing to do with making a better person, a better student or a better athlete anymore. It has nothing to do with that. It's all about how can I get this kid to help me win games to make our university look good and for us to get more money however we can for the universities. That's that's what it's come down to. It yeah. ain't about it's it's not about giving kids opportunities to to grow and develop and, and why they're there for the four or five years. It's, it's not about that anymore. Right. No, for sure. Um, I also wanted to let you know, uh, a Dr. Uya Sunday had asked me to say hello to you. He's doing very well. 
and uh, he wishes you well as well. Well, I tell you, that's, that's the thing that, you know, when you can take a look at the guys you coached and what they're doing to, you know, help people out and what their profession is and everything else, that's yep. the stuff that really makes you feel good about, you know, what you do. You know, because, you know what, it was never, yeah, I wanted to win as much as the next guy, but the one thing I wasn't going to do was I wasn't going to sacrifice the kids just to try to win or try to cheat to win or do any of those sort of things. And, you know, and it's just, it's just very, when you see guys that have gone on and done or doing great work and doing great things, you know, that's what, that's what makes you say, okay, you did it for the right reasons. Yeah, no, when, when they come sure. back, when they come back and they say, "Hey, coach," and they're always looking you up or trying to find out where you are and come shake your hand, it means a lot. No, I mean for right. sure. He, I mean he, he had uh, Norris Wilson, he had Rob Ambrose, he had Hank Hughes, he had Terry Richardson, he had so many great coaches under his tree that developed, and they always say that we're better off after leaving him. That a lot of guys can't say, and that's what well, I think makes the difference. Well, and you know what? I mean, it's a, it's, it's a sad state of affairs because everybody always wants to just take a look at how many you won and how many you lost. Yep. But you yep. know what? But you know what? To me, it's more about how many kids that I affect in a positive way and give them opportunities to go on and be successful, you know, in their life that maybe wouldn't have had that opportunity. That's, that to me is what it's, what it's all about. That's the right statement right there, coach. You're absolutely correct. That is. I mean, that that to me is that to me is coaching, and it's that's not what coaching is anymore with the way they have the system. In the pros, it's different, is because those guys are getting paid, and you are expected to win in the pros. But at the college level, and now it's it's a shame, but that's what they've gotten away from that in the college level. Well, coach, thank you so much for being with us today. We really appreciate it. We uh, we 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 learned a lot. This is this has been enlightening, and uh, this is 97.9 Unity Radio, and uh, everyone's going to be excited for this interview. And uh, it wasn't too bad being on the hot seat, right? No, not at all. I survived you in know? the hot seat. That's right. He, he survived. So, he, would, he, he would do fine. He Frank would. Frank was 0 4 for his picks last. 0 and week, so. 4, Coach. I've uh, never. I and, three and one, three and well. one, two and two. Now 0 and 4. You know what? The Colorado game was one of my four losses. Yeah. I yeah. didn't expect that. It was a, just a fantastic. Now, is that, now was, it, was that the largest comeback in, in that program's history? Yeah, that was the largest was uh, the comeback largest. in Stanford's history. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that was, it was it was unbelievable. I mean, it, it twenty nine nothing at halftime. You're sitting there and you're saying, "Oh man, come out!" They score, and then I'll tell you, the big turning point in that game was when they had the ball in the minus three and they, they threw the ball on a slant, and the kid took it ninety seven yards, and he outran Colorado's players. I think the Colorado players said, oh, oh, you know, and that's, you could really see the momentum really turn at that point in time. And then, you know, they just, they just kept it going. And, uh, you know, uh, that's happened for them because they needed a game like that. And I saw the coach after head coach and I walked up to him and just said, Hey, introduce myself. And he knew who I was, you know, with Corey, but I just said, Hey coach, I know how it is. I said, <laughs> you know, yeah, I know how that much this one means to you. And I said, this, this will be a stepping stone for you guys. This will help the confidence, everything. So I was happy for them because when you see they, – they had a rough one against Arizona. They lost by one. They got beat by Sacramento State. So yeah. to come back from that, you know, it tells you what kind of kids they have and what the job that those coaches have been doing to keep reinforcing the right things to those kids to have them be down 29 and come back and win. 
it tells you a lot about that program and the culture that uh, he's instilling there. And that, that, when you sit there as a coach, you see that, you appreciate that. The average fan doesn't see that and doesn't appreciate it. And I'll leave you with this, Coach. Do you think Dion is for real? Um, <laughs> it'll, time will tell. You know, time will tell. And uh, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> All right. All right. Thank you so much for being with us, Coach. I'm, I'm sure I'll find a way to finagle to have you on again. And uh, right. just remember, when, uh, when life gives you lemons, don't make lemonade. Take two oranges and throw them back at life. Right. There we go. All right, bud. Okay, guys. I appreciate it. Appreciate it. All right.